Well, I think as you might be able to tell, the uh, set is coming together for The Little Mermaid. Um, I think that might be the, the ship, or maybe that's the, I don't know. There's columns back here and all that, that a lot of hard work going into it, and uh, it's great. I hope you guys are um, excited about not just the fact that these performances are taking place, but that it's an opportunity for us to reach out to our community. And, and I pray that that's something that you're even thinking about how you can participate and help. But we've been talking about the, the real Little Mermaid story from Hans Christian Andersen and how there's differences. Um, there's some similarities. The, the idea that, that, um, that her father had, had provided um, the Little Mermaid with everything that she needed, okay? Uh, wonderful world. We talked about that. It was more than just stuff. It was even, um, you know, healthy relationships. It was a job. She had a job to do and one that she seemed to enjoy doing. But for whatever reason, she wasn't good enough. She wanted to leave. And we, we talked about that, about, you know, what was tempting her to go and we know that it wasn't like in the cartoon version, the Disney version, she wants to leave because she's in love with this um, handsome prince. She wants to leave for that, but she also wants to leave because in Hans Christian Andersen's story, the Little Mermaid, I mean mermaids and mermen, merpeople, um, they not only have, um, they, they could live a long time, they could live 300 years about, but they weren't immortal. And the only human beings were immortal. So she wanted to become human so that she could be immortal. But of course, there was a high price. And we talked a little bit about that price last week. And the high price is what makes The Little Mermaid kind of different. Um, different from what you often see in these... Um, you know, these Disney-fied movies. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But before we do, you know, today's Father's Day, and, and you know, um, some people say this from time to time, that, that the, the whole idea of a father has is, is kind of been under attack in our culture. And there's probably truth to it. But one of the things that kind of gives me hope is how most fathers respond to these attacks. You know, but I wanted to show you some of the, some of the attacks, some that you, you know, you might have missed along the way. So there are, Disney has these different father figures in their stories, and I think we have images of them. So anybody know her, um, whose dad this is? This would be, yeah, Jasmine, right? Um, what's that? Yeah, that's what I said. Okay, so, so show the next one. Okay, and this is Belle's father from Beauty and the Beast. And then finally you have the king, King Triton, and he's, he's the Little Mermaid's father. He's the only one that kind of looks like me. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> But how are, the, how are the fathers typically presented in these, in these Disney stories? 
And we don't really think about it sometimes because we just say, it's just Disney. It's just Disney. If you think something is just Disney or just entertainment, you, you need to be careful. A lot of parents have allowed their children to be raised through entertainment, whether it's TV, movies, videos, what's online. They allowed them to be raised through entertainment. Why? Because it shuts them up. You know, you get an hour and a half to two hours of silence as they're watching. And for a parent, silence is golden, right? Without the constant yammering from the kids. But I think we miss something along the way because all of these movies, they, they, they give this idea of what a father is. And the father is either kind of a clueless, weak person, very confused, or with the Little Mermaid's father, he's, he, he's overbearing. But what they all have in common is this. They don't understand their kids. They don't understand their kids. And because they don't understand their kids, their kids are going to now rebel. And I told you, one of the things that gives me hope, and I hope it's because fathers actually know that they're under attack, is that you don't hear a lot of fathers striking back. You get fathers that just do what they do. Despite the attacks, despite the anger, despite the you know, treatment that you find in so many TV shows and movies today about fathers, they just show up and do their job. I love that. You don't hear them whining too much. Once in a while, you'll hear somebody whining about it. But you don't hear them whining. They show up. They do their job. And they keep moving. It gives me hope because that's what people of strength do. People of strength don't feel the need to have to fight off every attack that comes. They just show up and they do their job. Keep moving. Well, there's a difference with The Little Mermaid, especially in the real story. Because in the movie version, you know, she's like the other Disney princesses. You know, she, she wants to go out and be part of a different world, but she still has opportunity to go back. But as we talked about last week, in the Hans Christian Andersen story, the Little Mermaid, when, if she gets what she wants and she leaves, she's cutting off all ties with her former life. She's not just going to go somewhere and have this new life and be able to go back and forth. No, it's over. She's no longer going to be able to live in the world her father provided. She's no longer going to be able to have the relationship with her sisters and relationship with with her father and her grandmother. It's done. She's giving all that up. And that's the price. And the price is even higher than that. And by the way, what she's getting is she's not getting, she's not getting a guarantee. There's no guarantee the prince is going to love her. There's no guarantee she's going to have immortality. All she's getting is a chance. 
And then the chance is further complicated because what has to happen is somebody has to love her. And of course, she wants it to be the prince. But somebody has to love her. But Ursula, the sea witch, says, there's another price. Not just that you're leaving and you can never go back, but the price is your voice. You won't be able to speak. You won't be able to share what's in your heart and on your mind. You're going to lose your voice too. Now, in the Hans Christian Andersen story, the sea witch, Ursula, tells the little mermaid, this is really stupid. You should not do this. Okay, so when the person who's the villain is telling you your idea is really, really stupid, and all your friends and your family are saying it's really, really stupid, why are you still going to do stupid? Well, we have to, otherwise there's not going to be a story. It would be, the end of the story was, would be, and so the little mermaid listened to the sea witch and went back and lived happily ever after with her family, right? So there's no story, so she has to do the stupid thing. But she's told again and again that this is wrong. You shouldn't do, you shouldn't do this. But she's crossed this line. And we all cross this line at some point with different things. And she's crossed the line where she has said that the thing that she wants is so worth it, she's willing to pay any price, take any risk. You've probably done that before. Maybe it worked out for you and that was good. Maybe it didn't. But you see, once somebody crosses that line, once they're willing to say, this thing is so valuable that I will pay any price and take any risk, talking sense into them, it's not going to work. Because they've decided that this thing that they want, this objective, this goal, is so valuable Reason no longer has anything to do it. In, in a sense, what they're saying is, I would rather die than not have what I want to have or what I think I need. That's how high the price is. And that's what she does. Now, this would be okay if the thing that we wanted was actually that valuable. So you might be asking, well, how do we value things? How do we know? Well, as Christians, the word itself means little Christ to be like Christ. It would, think, it would seem to say that we would value what God values. And if God has placed something out there that is so valuable, and he's directed us to obtain that which is so valuable, then yeah, any price, any risk is worth it. Unfortunately, we now live in this world and we're all kind of products of this world where the world values the things of the world more than it values the things of God. We talked a little bit about this last week where the world values more of what, you, what we can see. We value more of immediate results. We value more of the short term, the practical, 
not so much things we can't see, not so much the eternal, not so much the quality of things. You know, we talked about even with churches. You know, what would people rather have? A big church or a healthy church? Well, most people think a healthy church is a big church. But most people say, take big church. Even if they choose small church, they're not choosing small church because small church is healthy. They're choosing small church because small church is comfortable. I will tell you this, to kind of jump back to our big series that we're going through. Healthy church is simultaneously comfortable and uncomfortable. If we're in a really healthy church, there's going to be a core of what we are as a church that is going to make you feel safe and secure and comfortable and loved and held. And then there's going to be another part of that healthy church that is going to scare you to death. Because this healthy church keeps talking about risking everything for the cause of Christ. Doing whatever he calls us to do. Becoming closer and closer to one another. Reaching out to our enemies and to people who are nothing like us. Do we value what God values or do we value the things of the world? Well, um, we're going to turn to the Bible because if we're just going to get our message today from the Little Mermaid, I'm pretty sure it's not an inspired text. Um, it's not in the Bible. You know. So if we go to the Bible, we're going to go to this story, a story that's probably somewhat familiar to you. It's a story that comes from the book of Judges. And, and Judges is written about a period in um, Israel's history, about maybe 3,000 or so years ago. There's this period in, in Israel's history where Israel is not really a nation. Israel has, has left Egypt out of slavery. They, they're this kind of loose confederation of tribes. And then something happens on their way to the promised land that God's leading them out of slavery, where God presents this, this, this covenant, this idea. And he says, if you agree to this idea, I will be your God. But you got to agree to it. And they agree to it. And suddenly this loose confederation of tribes that have common ancestors that date back 400 years, but this loose confederation of tribes are now united, sort of. But they're united around an idea. They go to the promised land. They, they, they conquer the people that, that are there. They, they take over the promised land, and they're there. And now they just are living as this loose confederation of tribes. Well, there's no king. There's no centralized government. There's just this idea, this idea that God has given them, this covenant that they have that they've agreed to keep. And so they keep it, kind of, sort of, for a little while. But eventually, what happens? Well, eventually, 
they start to look at their neighbors. They start to see what they're doing and their values. And then they start to adopt some of their customs and they start worshiping their gods. And worshiping their gods is more than just, hey, going to their church. Worshiping their gods involves some pretty violent things. Some of their gods were, um, you know, you, you, you would sacrifice babies to their gods. A lot of the gods were part of a fertility religion, so a lot of prostitution and sexual morality would have been part. And so a lot of things are happening and the people are getting farther and farther away from the covenant, farther and farther away from the idea. But they made a promise, and God made a promise. So God brings judgment on them, not because he's mad at them, but because he's trying to help them keep their promise. And so judgment comes, and judgment usually came in the form of one of these neighboring city-states or groups of people coming upon them and conquering them and oppressing them. Then, of course, at this point, all of a sudden, that idea they, had in, they got from God in the desert comes back to them. And they're like, oh, God, help us. You know, we, you know we, we're sorry we didn't ask for your help when things were going well. We're sorry we didn't ask for your help when we were starting to go connect with these other people and worship their gods. But now we, we really want your help. And God would provide someone to help them. He would raise up a deliverer. And that deliverer in the Bible is called a judge. And the deliverer would come and help them overthrow the, the people that were oppressing them, regain stability and peace in the land, and the judge would sometimes not really be a king, but he'd be looked to as a leader. Sometimes it was a she. Also mediate disputes. But there would be peace. But then that judge would die. And as you might guess, the same thing would happen again. They would go from this covenant, this peace, to rebellion, judgment, deliverance. Well, one of those judges is Samson. And Samson serves a couple purposes. First of all, he is one of the judges. He does tell us uh, it is the story of God's deliverance. But Samson also kind of typified what was going on with the Israelites and the kind of progression of sin in their lives. Because ultimately they were suffering from the same thing we suffer from is they were losing sight of what was most valuable. They were, they were choosing what the world around them was telling them was more valuable, and they were forgetting the things that God had told them were most valuable. You see, when, when we think about the Ten Commandments, some people think about, oh, there's just these laws. But that's really not what the point of the Ten Commandments are. The point of the Ten Commandments is God is saying, look, you guys, you guys are just, again, a loose confederation of tribes. At this time, there is no such thing as the modern nation state like we have today. In fact, where you're going, 
People just kind of affiliate as either kind of nomadic tribes or they have a few cities here and there. But you know, this idea of an empire, it's not really a thing it's in this area. You know, you got Egypt. They're kind of the exception. And so something is going to hold you together. How can you stay together and be united? How can you be a good society? And see, God didn't just put them somewhere. God put them in one of the places that is the most uh, simultaneously strategic and vulnerable places in that part of the world. It's right there where three continents meet. You've got Europe, you've got Asia, you've got Africa. They all meet right there. And all these other civilizations and, and city-states and groups are traveling in that area. And of course, if I want to, to be a big power and conquer and move into that next area, that next geographic area, I need to control this, this place. So how are you going to stay together? How are you going to stay united? He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a king. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you centralized government. He says, I'm going to give you these, this, this covenant that includes these commandments because these commandments are, are two things. They are what will define a good society. You want to have a good society? Follow these things. The second thing is, I'm telling you what's valuable to me. God is telling the people, this is what's most valuable to me. This is why I'm telling you this. And so what happens? People forget. They forget that this isn't just rules they have to keep. This is God telling them, this is what I value. And this is what's going to make you a strong society in this very difficult place. And so they suffer from the same problems we sometimes suffer from. We value the things of the world more than we value the things of God. This story is the story of Samson. Samson, um, you know, he's probably the first uh, superhero. You know, he would, they would probably have a Marvel movie about him. He's super strong. He did some pretty heroic things. He fought off an entire army, like a thousand people by himself. He went to the city gates because he was upset and he tore the gates off and he carried them up to this hill. Did all kinds of things. Killed a lion with his bare hands. This is Samson, someone that was chosen by God, someone who was blessed by God. But Samson had a problem. Problem could be summed up in just maybe pride, and that was probably part of his problem. Samson wanted what he wanted. He knew he was blessed, but he didn't understand why he was blessed. And because of that, it led him down a pretty dangerous path that eventually ended in his death. So in Judges 16, verses, beginning with verse 4, 
It says, after this he, that's Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines, the Philistines are their enemies, by the way. They're the ones that, have, uh, that are actually oppressing the Israelites. And Delilah is one of them. Hopefully you can already see problems. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So, here's Samson. And we can already see some issues with Samson. We can already see the price that Samson is willing to pay to get what he wants. This isn't the first time Samson has wanted a Philistine woman. You see, God had said something And he said it not for the reason sometimes people think. Some people think like this sounds kind of racist when God said, don't intermarry with this people around you. And it's really not a racial thing at all. It's based on two things. One, God knows men are weak. Okay? Just knows that. Men are weak. And he he knows that if you know, this guy goes and marries this woman who's outside of, of, of Israel, that the man is eventually going to start serving their gods. It's a question of idolatry. It's not a question of, of race. In fact, we know that, you know, when uh, the Israelites were moving in, we, we have the story of Rahab, who was a Canaanite, who marries, you know, one of the spies and becomes in the same lineage of of Jesus. So we know it's not a racial thing. It's more this idolatry and the fact that men are weak. As a matter of fact, the most famous example is Solomon. Solomon, who's the king. Solomon, who's supposed to be wise, and he marries hundreds and has hundreds of concubines. And what was the problem? He's also worshiping all their gods. So what does Samson give up to get what he wants? He gives up God's law. He gives up obedience. He's not just rejecting God's law. He's even rejecting his own people. The first time he does this, like his parents are talking to him and his parents say, like, Samson, aren't any of the Israelite women good enough? Aren't any of them? You couldn't find one Israelite woman. 
I mean, surely you could have found one. Why you have to go to the, to the enemy? Well, who knows? Who knows what Samson said? Who knows how he got it in his head that that's what he wanted? But it's what he wanted. So as I said, Samson is this, this figure in Israel's history, but he's also symbolizing this problem that, that Israel would have. It's telling us a little more about why they would go through this cycle of covenant peace and then rejecting God. It's because Samson trusts in his own strength. He trusts in his own power. He's like, sure, those, those other guys might you know, worship those false gods. Those other guys might do some of those, but not me. Because, you know, I'm Samson. I'm strong. I'm special. I'm blessed. And so he thinks he's above it all. He trusts in his own strength. You see, if God is telling you not to do something or to stay away from something, he's also telling you, you can't handle it on your own. There's only a couple of sins where the Bible says, run away. Run away. And one of them is sexual immorality. Paul is writing to Christians in the church and he says, flee. Run away from it. Why? Because he knows we're weak. And he knows that no matter how much we might pray and how much we might you know, try to, to stand strong in the Lord, if we stay right there by sexual temptation, we will eventually give in. And run away. Well, Samson he's got, thinks he's got it. I can handle it. You know, I can stop it any time. Doesn't, I'm good. And that was Israel's problem. When Israel had peace, Israel forgot that the peace came not because they were so awesome, but because God was, was blessing them and protecting them. So Samson gives up God's law. Well, we know the, 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 that this goes on a couple more times where Samson's just playing this game with Delilah, telling her different things, and she keeps believing him, and then, you know, she says, hey, the Philistines are here, and, and then everything's good, because Samson just beats them up, and they all run away. And then we get to this fourth time. And the fourth time is in verse 16, where it says, and when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, that's a long way of saying she nagged him. It's another, uh, it's another uh, weakness men have. Um, we can only take so much nagging, and then we will do it to stop the nagging. It says, and urged him, and I love the way it says this, his soul was vexed to death. She had been saying it so many times. Samson, please, please, please tell me. Why don't you tell me? You don't love me. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. It's like his soul was vexed to death. Men, don't say amen. Um, otherwise, you may be in trouble when you go home. 
But he says, his soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she caught a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And he said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. What else did Samson give up? He gave up God's law, but he also gave up God's purpose for his life. You see, the Nazarite vow is kind of this thing we kind of understand, but we don't fully understand. And in typically what happened with the Nazarite vow is it came later on in life, and it was temporary. Like you might choose to take a Nazarite vow, and you would say like, oh, I'm not going to shave, or I'm not going to you know, refrain from certain foods, certain practices for a period of time, maybe a year, maybe two years. But Samson was different. He was from birth this way. And the reason seems really clear is because God was setting him aside for a special purpose. He had a specific purpose in mind, a mission for, for Samson. Samson from before birth was designated as someone who would be a protector of his people, a defender. And so, and so we, we, we find that taking place, and we know Samson knows this, but He's willing to give it up. He's willing to disregard it. And so he, he tells her. He tells her, and you know, unless Samson is really stupid, he knows exactly what she's going to do. Exactly what she's going to do. See, Samson was supposed to be one of the judges. He was supposed to be a deliverer. He's supposed to be a protector. And he had all the gifts. He's not only the, the most powerful, the strongest, he was a leader. People looked to him. They listened, they followed. You see, Samson somehow had lost sight of why God had blessed him. And he thought God blessed him just to bless him. Which means he could use the blessings however he wanted. It's funny, because we look at Samson and we go, come on, Samson, should have known better. Just like we look at the Little Mermaid. Come on, Little Mermaid, should have known better. This isn't going to work out. But then if we look at our own lives, how many of us ask the question, God, why have you blessed me? For what purpose? Why have you blessed me physically, intellectually, with my relationships, financially, career-wise? Why have you blessed me? Because if the answer is you've blessed me just to bless me, then you know what? You get to do whatever you want with whatever God's blessed you with. 
But if you understand that God blesses with a purpose, then you need to ask the question, what is the purpose? Why have you blessed me? I even would say with time, you know, I'm not yet at that age. I'm getting closer to the age where, you know, every day is going to be a blessing. Like, not sure if it's my last. But if God gives you one more day, if he blesses you with one more day, why? If he blesses you with one more year, why? One more decade, why? Do we think about that? You see, Samson gave up God's purpose. Maybe he gave it up because he didn't really know. Maybe he took it for granted. Or maybe he did know. And what he wanted was more important. And see, ultimately, what Samson is giving up is he's giving up God's love. See, God God chose him. God blessed him because he loved him and he loved his people. And Samson is completely disregarding this. He's completely abandoning this so that he can have the love of this, of this woman. And it's not just any woman. It's a woman who's tried to trick him three times already, who obviously is up to no good. doesn't matter. It's what he wants. And he'll pay any price. You know, this would be a really sad story if it ended there. It doesn't. Most of you know how this story ends. Because one of the great blessings of life is that God's love does not depend on whether I receive it or not. It's not up to me. It's up to him. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm so grateful that my stupid choices, my wanting to chase after things and make things valuable and even exchange God's love for it, that it doesn't stop God from loving me. We were singing about grace earlier. We were talking about how it's amazing because even though we want to run away from it, we want to push it away, God still stands there. He loves. He does his job. Doesn't depend on us. That's how the Samson story ends. Even though Samson disobeys God, rejects his law, Samson disobeys God and gives up his purpose. He even gives up God's very love. God uses him many ways. In fact, God uses him finally when he's there in prison, broken, enslaved, can't see anymore, now God can use him. Now Samson understands it wasn't about me. It was about him and his power. 
And as you guys know, if you've read this story, that Samson goes and pays the ultimate price. He obeys God. He goes and sacrifices his life to free his people. It's amazing. The same God is the God who loves us. The God who redeems us. The God who, even though we want to reject Him and get out of His world, He makes a way. He makes a way. And that way is Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. But it's more than just faith in Jesus Christ. That's from our end, faith in Jesus Christ. But it's what God does as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. He not only forgives us, He not only makes us clean, He makes us new. He gives us His Spirit. He welcomes us home. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we've strayed, how much we've rebelled, See, the price of getting what we want, when we want it enough, we'll pay any price. God did the same thing. The price of what He wants. And what He wants is a right relationship with us. And He paid the highest price. The Son, Jesus Christ.